This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We are very pleased to have a special guest in segment two today. This would be Ira Flato, the host of NPR's Science Friday. Mr. Flato has a new book out titled Present at the Future, From Evolution to Nanotechnology, Candid and Controversial Conversations on Science and Nature. As you probably know, we're big fans of talking about issues of science and nature on this program, and we have to say that uh, a great role model in doing this is Ira Flato. We're uh, big fans of Talk of the Nation Science Friday and suspect, uh, dear listener, that you probably are as well. So stay tuned for our talk with Ira Flato in our second segment today. In the meantime, let us uh, start the program as we like to do with On This Day in History. This uh, day in question being September 6th. September 6th, 1492, the Italian-born explorer Christopher Columbus sailed west from the Canary Islands for his first voyage to what turned out to be North America. Columbus, of course, expected to sail to China. Based on some rather large miscalculations on his part, uh, luckily the Western Hemisphere intervened. If it hadn't and he'd sailed through into the Pacific, he'd have never made it. On this date, exactly 30 years later, September 6th, 1522, the first circumnavigation of the world was completed by the haggard remnant of Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan's five-ship fleet. A single ship, the Vitoria, returned to Spain after setting sail three years before. Only 22 of the original 270 men survived the ordeal. Magellan himself was murdered in the Philippines in April of 1521. On September 6, 1901, U.S. President William McKinley was mortally wounded at the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, after anarchist Leon Salgaz stepped forward to shake hands then shot him twice at point-blank range. McKinley's death led to the elevation of Vice President Theodore Roosevelt to become America's 26th president. T.R. was entirely too independent-minded to, to suit uh, most of the Republican political fixers. Evidently, a horrified Mark Hanna, the Karl Rove of his day, said upon learning of McKinley's death, Now that damn cowboy is president! During the first Roosevelt administration... By the way, his cousin Franklin was a very distant relative. The administration uh, took steps in the direction of conservation as well as reining in some of the power of the large corporations, uh, positions the Republican Party has spent the last century running away from. On September 6, 1972, in South Vietnam, President Nguyen Van Thu abolished popular elections. Mind you, this was uh, eight years into a uh, pretty hot war involving U.S. troops that was being fought purportedly to establish democratic principles in South Vietnam. And for more information on that topic, we would refer you to our previous interview on this show with Dr. Larry Berman, which you can find among our archives at radioparallax.com. And finally, on September 6, 1976, a Soviet Air Force pilot landed a MiG-25 fighter jet in Japan and asked for asylum in the United States. There had been many rumors uh, prior to this man's defection about uh, the capabilities of the MiG Foxbat. 
Its capabilities were alleged to be so astonishing that the U.S. had to spare no expense in building a fighter that could match it. As it turned out, when we had a chance to actually examine the plane, it could do very little of what, uh, what people alleged it to be capable of. It was assumed, for example, that, uh, that it must be made of titanium because of its uh, high-speed capabilities. But uh, on the runway in Japan, someone walked over with a magnet and found that, clank, no, it was attracted to the steel airframe. It was also alleged at the time, and I remember this very well, that the MiG Foxbat must have very sophisticated electronics. So imagine the surprise of analysts to uh, look inside the cockpit and discover that the avionics on the plane used vacuum tube technology. Of course, the military-industrial complex spinmeisters went to work and said that, well, you know, what this proves is that the Russians are ready to fight a nuclear war because vacuum tubes are not susceptible to the electromagnetic pulse, which would otherwise disable aircraft. So by the time they were done, instead of the MiG Foxbat being much less of a threat uh, than it was purported to be, <laughs> by the time they were done, it was actually a much more ominous dagger pointed at the heart of America. A threat which naturally had to be met by much greater expenditures of U.S. taxpayer funds on, you know, ever more sophisticated weaponry. I want to at this point acknowledge a listener who called in during last week's program when we were talking about some startling uh, content on the National Geographic channel. We noted uh, with some dismay that uh, you know something with the distinguished name National Geographic uh, attached to it, in this case the, the, the cable network channel, was going to have a special on 9-11 titled The Road to War, Iraq. Just the very fact that uh, this program was described as an examination of the diplomatic process that led from 9-11 to the invasion of Iraq just, <laughs> just smelled really bad. And uh, the odor increased when we noticed that the people that were being interviewed included Andrew Card, former White House Chief of Staff, ex-Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage, former Defense Policy Board Chairman Richard Pearl, Dick Cheney aide Mary Madeline, etc. This is basically the Bush administration concocting a story about uh, how 9-11 is linked to Iraq. We asked uh, how this could happen, and our caller pointed out that the National Geographic Channel is owned by Rupert Murdoch. And in fact, it does turn out that two-thirds of the National Geographic Channel is controlled by Murdoch's News Corp., the parent company of Fox News. This, uh, this odd link-up uh, has been written about uh, for years. We just weren't aware of it. Um, writing an online extra in January 19, 2004. So what's gotten into Fox? For Murdoch's gang, National Geographic represents a market it has rarely served. Upscale, wealthy folks. National Geographic says it attracts an audience with an average age of 45 and an income north of $70,000. Plus, Fox sees an opportunity to take on the Discovery Channel. The question is asked, the 19-year-old cable stalwart has spawned 13 other channels and has distanced itself from its documentary roots with shows like Monster Garage and American Chopper, which feature men building overwrought cars and motorcycles. But the article goes on to note, a better question might be what made National Geographic sidle up to Murdoch? The society's idea of a suitable partner runs more to Robert Perry, the North Pole explorer whose trip it financed in 1909. The link-up is even more surprising given that for years National Geographic had resisted putting a channel on the air, worried that doing so would cheapen its well-regarded, if somewhat yellowed, name. 
I don't know. We we like National Geographic magazine, but we did note on this program a couple years back that uh, back in 1909, Robert Perry faked going to the North Pole, and National Geographic still seems to be supporting his claims. Almost a hundred years later. So the National Geographic Society clearly has had its lapses, but uh, we are in general big fans. But obviously their television channel is a different issue, and you're going to have to take whatever you see on that with a grain of salt. Sad to say. Our quotes of the day, and we have two today in celebration of our look at science. The first comes from Conrad Lorenz, who once said, Truth in science can be defined as the working hypothesis best suited to open the way to the next better one. We also want to cite the classic quote of Sir Isaac Newton, who noted, If I've been able to see further than others, it was because I stood on the shoulders of giants. Which I can't help but, but note should refer our listeners to our interview with James Conner about Johannes Kepler. He's one of those giants that, uh, that Newton stood on the shoulders of, but unfortunately Newton really never acknowledged it very well. And our quip of the day comes from John Kenneth Galbraith, who once said, Faced with the choice between changing one's mind and proving that there is no need to do so, almost everyone gets busy on the proof. And our joke line of the day comes from Homer Simpson, who once said, You can't keep blaming yourself. Just blame yourself once, then move on. Our statistic of the day comes from Forbes magazine, which notes that a bone marrow transplant that would cost $400,000 in the United States costs $30,000 in India. The magazine notes that such cost disparities have led to a surge in, quote, medical tourism, unquote. And a very special message today goes out to Priya, who's five years old. Happy birthday, Priya. Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, this week was a good week for giving the finger, literally, after a member of a right-wing Japanese group cut off his little finger and sent it to Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, along with a letter protesting Abe's absence at a ceremony honoring Japan's war dead. I thought they would ignore me if I just sent the letter, the man told police. And as far as we know, the prime minister has not even lifted a finger to respond. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for Keith Richards, who demanded, but did not get, an apology from two Swedish newspapers that said he seemed, quote, super drunk, unquote, and, quote, confused, unquote, at a recent concert in Gothenburg. And it was kind of an ugly week, uh, actually a few weeks back, for family planning, after DNA testing confirmed that at least two of the children claiming to be the illegitimate children of James Brown actually are. One of them is 45-year-old LaRonda Pettit, whose mother met the soul singer at a concert in the 1960s. Pettit was quoted as saying, I was angry that he was out there making all this money and he wasn't doing anything for my mother and me. 
Note of the Week magazine, James Brown has eight known children, but about a dozen other people have claimed him as their father. That's the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, from the Only in America file, we have the following. Former Marine Niles Reed, age 75 was wounded by a mortar shell during the Korean War. But when he applied last year for his Purple Heart, Navy officials told him his medal was out of stock and to buy one for $42 at a military supply store. After Reed's plight became national news, his U.S. Senator John Corrin awarded him the Purple Heart, saying the Navy's treatment of this veteran was embarrassing. Reed, for his part, said he wasn't angry. I can imagine, of course, that with what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's a big shortage, said Reed. I don't know. For our part, uh, we wonder how it is we're spending $11 million an hour on this fiasco in Iraq, and we can't find $42 to honor a war veteran. All right. With Ira Flato as a guest today, we need to concentrate on science topics. But uh, before we move off the subject completely, let's uh, let's just talk about the fact that... um, There's a GOP proposal out there that would alter how California awards its electoral votes. Apparently, California Republicans, tired of uh, the fact that uh, Californians are turning their back on the national ticket, at least have done so for four times running, are floating this ballot initiative that would uh, award its 55 electoral votes based on congressional district. Had this system been in place in 2004, George Bush would have come out of California with 22 electoral votes to John Kerry's 33. Noted Kevin Eckery, described as a GOP consultant who supports the initiative, it has a gut-level appeal to it. It sounds fair, and it is fair. Now, if you're puzzled by this Republican uh, stampede towards sudden fairness, uh, (laughs) you'd have to ask, why don't they start with the state of Texas? In Texas, every state office and both both houses of the legislature are controlled by the Republican Party. It should be very easy to enact legislation that splits up Texas's electoral votes. But oddly enough, the GOP seems concerned about California. Hmm. What I find astounding is that uh, in a statewide field poll conducted last month, 47% of Californians favor the change, with Democrats evenly split at the first go-through. It was noted that Democratic support faded sharply when pollsters pointed out what the new system would would have meant to the GOP in the last presidential election. Boy, this is really a bad idea, but it's noted that it's very easy to mobilize a no campaign. If initiatives start out with less than 50% support, uh, it's it's judged that they almost inevitably fail. But, uh, you know, it'll be very sad if we have to vote on this in June. I mean, it's such an obvious power grab, you know, disguised as a a measure to ensure fairness. And before we complete this segue from science slash technology uh, away from politics, we would note that the penny is in trouble again. Now, you may not be aware of this, but uh, you haven't had copper pennies in your pocket for some time. When the price of copper surged uh, a quarter century ago, the U.S. Mint decided to manufacture the coins almost entirely out of zinc. 
But now that the price of zinc has soared, uh, along with the worldwide commodities boom, the government now spends two cents to make a penny. Not surprisingly, the nation's sole supplier of zinc penny blanks, Jardin Zinc Products, is lobbying the federal government to protect its interests. Yes, evidently the company spent $180,000 in 2006 to fight legislation that would have allowed retailers to round off cash transactions to the nearest nickel. God, we have got to get rid of the penny. This is insane. Think of the vast cost to do business across this country with all those penny trays and everyone having to like count out pennies every time you buy something in every grocery store or uh, you know 7-Eleven from coast to coast. It's, it's, really, it's, it's really quite mind-boggling. All right, uh, we're trying to move into science topics for our second and third uh, segments today, but um, you know sometimes politics and science just overlap. An article by Frank Grieve, McClatchy, Washington Bureau, notes that a new treaty may ban a toxic ship chemical, that the EPA deems the most toxic chemical ever deliberately released into the world's waters. The poison tributylton is a cheap and effective barnacle and algae killer. It was once used on nearly all the world's 30,000 commercial ships. It's been noted for some time that this stuff uh, leaches its way into the food chain and works its way out of the top. Uh, 1988, the U.S. banned TBT on vessels that are less than 82 feet long. Apparently, uh, uh, production was voluntarily stopped by major U.S. and European makers in 2001, but it continues to be widely used in much of Asia. Now, here's an item from the Sacramento Bee uh, we're keen to follow up on and have been for some time. Matt Weiser, writing a few days back, notes uh, that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers heard a challenge a couple weeks back to its removal policy. This is at a hearing here in Sacramento. So the headline, scientists, trees help, not hinder levee safety. This is a truly unbelievable story. So the article, though federal officials on Tuesday, this is last week, faced a deluge of evidence that trees do not threaten levees, they continued to tout their own policy that could require every mature tree to be cut down on Sacramento levees. At a symposium on the issue in Sacramento, a parade of scientists summarized decades of research showing that trees may in fact improve flood safety when planted on levees. The backdrop to Tuesday's meeting were the 32 Central Valley levee districts that in February failed a maintenance inspection by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Most failed because their levees had too many trees and shrubs. The Corps, which is preparing a new national levee maintenance policy, currently says no vegetation larger than two inches in diameter should grow on a levee. Now you may have noticed some of the coverage of late at the two-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, the vast scandal of the fact that two years later, New Orleans is still at risk. What has been done? They've apparently raised the levees a couple of feet, and that's about it. Remember all this talk about how we had to divert sediment and get the sediment back in the barrier islands and we had to do all these things that would prevent this from happening again? Well, in the last two years, nothing much has been done. I promise you we're going to follow up on this story. This is just pathetic. All right, let's close with two uh, scientific-type articles from the miscellaneous file. First off, in a letter by a man named Dan Walters... Dateline Sacramento, and no, we're not sure if it's the same uh, Dan Walters that writes for the Sacramento Bee. But whoever this man was, he wrote Invention and Technology magazine, at least in their summer 2007 issue, noting the following. 
I found your spring edition especially interesting as I'm both a recovering flashlight collector and an avid user of GPS units. My most interesting reading was made last October while visiting Four Corners where Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico meet. I decided to take a reading with my handheld Garmin Legend and discovered that the famous marker where one can pose with a limb in each state is actually about 250 feet too far south. A visitor from Europe was doing the same thing and got the same result. The correct spot would have been inside a rather steep canyon, I found, as I walked northward, GPS in hand. Asking about this, uh, the magazine replied that the monument of the Four Corners spot was located where the original survey placed it in the 19th century. Subsequently, more accurate surveys showed the marker was off by a couple of hundred feet. But in 1925, the Supreme Court ruled that the original survey, which had come to be accepted as the proper location, overruled the legislative language. Thus, while the monument does not mark the exact location of 37 degrees north, 109 degrees west, the point specified by Congress, but it does mark the exact location of the point where the four states come together. Once again, the difference between science and technology and politics. And in our final item for the segment, guitarist-songwriter Brian May completed his doctorate in astrophysics three decades after he put academia on hold to form a rock group. May was awarded his qualification last month by London's Imperial College, said that submitting his 48,000-word thesis, Radial Velocities in the Zodiacal Dust Cloud, was stressful. Apparently, Brian May was an astrophysics student at Imperial College when he joined Freddie Mercury and Roger Taylor in 1970 to form Queen, one of Britain's biggest musical groups of the 1970s. If you're keeping track, May's thesis set out to prove that planets and dust clouds in our solar system orbit in the same direction. We here at Radio Parallax say congratulations to Brian May. Better late than never. Take a short break. When we come back, we'll speak with Ira Flato of NPR's Science Friday. Just 